Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. I'm Ricardo De Silva, Associate Editor at America Media, and I'll be your host while Colleen Dully is on parental leave. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerardo Connell and I will bring you behind the headlines on the biggest stories out of the Vatican. Breaking news this morning, Cardinal George Pell has died at the age of 81. The senior Catholic passing away in Rome overnight. Cardinal George Pell, an Australian prelate who served as the Vatican's first financial overlord, has died. The Cardinal was also intimately involved with the present revision of the English translation of the Mass and had been the most senior Catholic cleric to be convicted and imprisoned for child sexual abuse a judgment later unanimously overturned by a full bench of Australia's High Court, but only after he served more than a year in a maximum security prison. Bishop Emeritus of Hong Kong, Cardinal Joseph Zen, had a private audience with Pope Francis during his recent visit to the Vatican. The Cardinal met the Pope at Casa Santa Marta, with a conversation reported as being wonderful and warm, according to the Jesuit publication America. Cardinal Joseph Zen Zikyun, the 90-year-old Archbishop of Hong Kong, who was arrested last year on suspicious charges, was given special permission to travel to the Vatican to attend the funeral of his friend, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. While in Rome, Cardinal Zen also met with Pope Francis, which sparked questions about what many have thought to be an adversarial relationship between the two. Archbishop George Gangsween is the former secretary to Pope Benedict this week. Gangsween is publishing a book titled Nothing But The Truth, My Life Beside Benedict XVI, in which he has made some big claims. Archbishop Georg Genschwein, who was the personal secretary of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and had served him in that role from his time as Pope and before that as head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, has authored a tell-all book into, among other things, the complex relationship between the Pope Emeritus and Pope Francis. The book was published in Italian this Thursday and Jerry has read an advanced copy. We look at some of the questions the book raises and whether this will further compromise the Archbishop's already tenuous relationship with the present Pope. I'm Ricardo de Silva, and this is Inside the Vatican. Good afternoon, Jerry. Good afternoon from Rome, where the sun is shining, 15 degrees centigrade. And uh, of course, uh, you're stepping in for Colleen, and we have good news to tell our listeners. Indeed, we do. Colleen has given birth to William Oliver Wedby. William was born last Thursday evening. So he's our first Inside the Vatican baby. Congratulations to Colleen. Colleen, I know you're listening, so congratulations we're delighted for you and your husband and for baby William and be assured of our prayers. (music) 
Jerry, it's been non-stop since Christmas. I mean, you had Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's funeral, and now we've just heard last night that Australia's Cardinal George Pell died suddenly in a Roman hospital last night. That's Wednesday, January 11th, following cardiac complications after hip replacement surgery. The former Archbishop of Sydney and Melbourne was 81 and had just last week participated in the funeral mass for Benedict XVI. He served as the Vatican's first finance czar, becoming the first prefect of what is now the Vatican Dicastery for the Economy. He was in large part responsible for the English translation we currently use in the Mass. But perhaps his most enduring legacy will be one of which he was acquitted by a full bench of Australia's High Court. He was the most senior Catholic cleric in the world to be convicted for the sexual abuse of minors, a ruling since overturned for which the Cardinal has now been cleared. Hi, Inside the Vatican listeners. There's a developing story that broke after recording this episode that we need to make you aware of before you hear the next story. On Thursday morning, January 12, the Associated Press reported that Cardinal Pell had penned a memo under a pseudonym that had been circulating on a Vatican blog since the spring. In the two-part memo, Cardinal Pell claims, among many other things, that Pope Francis's papacy is, in the opinion of many on all sides of the ideological spectrum, a disaster, he says, if not a catastrophe. Also, in a separate letter written by Pell published today earlier in The Spectator, the politically conservative British newspaper, Cardinal Pell criticizes the synodal journey currently underway in the church as a toxic nightmare, he says, adding that the process is filled with neo-Marxist jargon. We will offer more context on this story in future episodes, but you can find a link to the initial report in the show notes. Back to the show. Cardinal Pell had an enormous influence in the life of the church, Jerry, from its theology to its liturgy, finances, discipline. What do you remember about him? Well, he was physically a big man. He was a rugby player. He was a formidable uh, debater. He was quite a controversial figure in many, many ways, and he was not adverse to splitting an audience. He was very close to Benedict XVI. John Paul II made him Archbishop of Melbourne, then Archbishop of Sydney, and then made him a cardinal in 2003. And this enabled him to participate in the 2005 conclave that elected Benedict XVI. Benedict XVI and he were very, very close, also theologically. He got him to come to Australia for the World Youth Day. We now know that During his time in Australia, Benedict celebrated a Mass in the Cardinal's private chapel in Sydney for victims of abuse, more than a dozen of them, I think. The story wasn't made known until yesterday. And there, Benedict met each of the victims afterwards. This is a very interesting element because much of the story about Pell in recent years has been about his abuse of the choir boys in Melbourne Cathedral. Uh, It was an extraordinary charge, and many people, including myself, never believed it from day one that this was possible, the way the story was presented. But it was obviously one that set the country on fire in some ways in Australia, and so much so that people were shouting at him as he went into the trial. He spent 404 days in solitary confinement in two different maximum security prisons. He was convicted in 2018 in the first instance, 2019 in the appeals court, and only in 2020 did the high court, this top 
court in Australia, by unanimous decision of the judges, throw out the case against him and said, he's a free man, this case doesn't stand up. Jerry, we must be clear though, even though he's been acquitted of the criminal charges, there are still legal processes that are ongoing in Australia. Yes, there is a civil case brought by the father of one of the two altar boys whom he was accused of abusing. The father believes that the altar boy, he committed suicide and he holds hell some way responsible. And now I don't know where that case will end, whether it can go forward, because uh, they were hoping to be able to interrogate in the court the cardinal on this question. It's, it's interesting to me. I mean, not unlike Benedict XVI in many ways, he has a controversial legacy when it comes to sexual abuse. Of course, there's this conviction that which was overturned, but he was also responsible for much of the reform when he was in Melbourne, which some have said was much more reform to protect the abusers than those abused. But he was responsible for paying attention to sexual abuse. Yes, he set up what he called the Melbourne response, which was the first official response in the church in Australia to try to give some kind of compensation to victims. But he put the parameters very tight and he was criticized for, for that. And of course, the Australian government set up a royal commission, which I think was maybe five to seven years investigating the whole question of abuse, not just in the Catholic Church, but also in other instances. I remember sitting in the hotel in Rome where Pell was questioned. And when the Royal Commission published its report at the end, they criticized him quite heavily for how he handled, because he was a leading figure in the church in Australia. And in a way, he, he was setting the speed and the direction on which the church took on, on the abuse question. But that wasn't his only issue. Cardinal Pell was very strong on the whole question of secularization. He was a very, in a way, a traditionalist in many ways. So even though he was quite traditional in terms of his theology and the reform of the liturgy, one of the things that he did do at the Vatican was financial reform, right? Well, first of all, we've got to remember that Pope Francis was elected on the 13th of March, 2013. And within days, he had created a council of cardinal advisors, one from each different area of the world. When the cardinals met in before the conclave, they were all up in arms about how Vatican finance were being handled and were being a cause of scandal in the church. We forget that. And Pope Francis said the cardinals before the election gave a mandate to the new pope to clean up the Vatican finances. And he chose Cardinal Pell, whom he knew was not exactly 100% on the same theological vision of church as he, but he was a, a man who was quite capable of helping him in terms of two tasks, the reform of the Curia and the government of the Universal Church. In the reform of the Curia, one of the first things the Pope aimed at was the reform of Vatican finances. And he knew the situation of Vatican finances was a jungle, and he needed somebody very strong to put into it. And so he chose what he called the Ranger, the Australian Ranger. And he said, you take charge. And he appointed him in February 2014 as the prefect of the new secretariat of the economy, which he created on that same day, and said, from now on, you lead the reform of the finances. 
he saw in Cardinal Pell qualities that he was a tough man, that he was not going to suffer fools easily, and that he needed somebody strong in the position of trying to reform Vatican finances. Unfortunately, less than three years later, he had to return to Australia in 2017 to what he said when he spoke to us before he left. I go back to defend my innocence, to prove that I have not committed these crimes. So in 2017, in the summer 2017, he went back to Australia and his five-year term as prefect expired in 2019. At that time, he was in a maximum security prison. When he came back, the Pope always believed in uh, Cardinal Pell's innocence. He saw all the various sides of Cardinal Pell, but one thing he believed was that he was honest in terms of this question. And he, he stood by him. He didn't remove him from office, as many people were pushing him to do when he was convicted. And... Then when he came back, he thanked him for what he called your Christian witness in the prison. And also today, in, in the telegram that he has sent to the dean of the College of Cardinals, Cardinal Ray, and to the family members, says he speaks about the cardinal with determination and wisdom that he pushed through the reform of the Vatican finance. And we have much to be grateful for. So I, I think there's a, there are many aspects to Cardinal Pell, like everybody. There are many shades to a person's character. Absolutely. And I mean, that's why I, I think it's important to talk about his role when it came to the Vatican's finances, because if we look at the mainstream media reporting on this, a lot of what it led with was that he was the most senior Catholic cleric to be convicted of the abuse of minors. And very little mention was made of what he did to clean up the mess in the Vatican's finances, which was a huge mess. Um, and Pope Francis saw that a man who perhaps is ideologically opposed to his own thinking is somebody he could bring in to exact the reform, perhaps the stealthy reform that was necessary to bring the Vatican into check with global financial practices. And that's still ongoing. Pell laid the foundation for the reform of Vatican finances. I think there is now consensus among the most balanced observers of what has happened in the Vatican on this, and the Pope has no doubt about it. It's very important that a show like ours covers both of these aspects. First, the crucial situation regarding the sexual abuse of minors by Catholic clerics. Any allegations must be investigated, and we must give light to those in the media. Then looking at the mess of the Vatican's finances and a person who was instrumental in its reform. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you, Jerry. May he rest in peace. So, Jerry, last week you broke a big story, and it was a story that was picked up by the international media that Gerard O'Connell reported first for America Media. Cardinal Zen, a 90-year-old prelate who was arrested last year on dubious charges in his native Hong Kong, has finally been allowed to leave the country even though he is awaiting trial. He was given special permission by the court in Hong Kong to travel to the Vatican for the funeral of his dear friend, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. But the news you broke was of his first meeting with Pope Francis since his arrest. What do we know? The court gave him five days to go and return. So on the fourth, 
He flew from Hong Kong via Doha and arrived in Rome on the morning of the 5th of January, the day of the funeral. He just made it to the Vatican to join in the Requiem Mass. And before the Requiem Mass, when he was vested, he happened to greet the Pope and they just shook hands and just exchanged two words. But then on Friday morning, the Cardinal was given by Pope Francis a private audience that afternoon at 3.30 in Santa Marta. Afterwards, the Cardinal told me it was wonderful. This was a very important meeting, but the Cardinal, believe me, and I spoke to him, he was so overjoyed. And this surprised a lot of people that the Pope met him. So, Jerry, in in some ways, like Cardinal Pell, uh, Cardinal Zen is thought to be somewhat ideologically opposed, um, on some matters at least, with Pope Francis. And so it is thought that they have an adversarial relationship. What you are describing does not sound adversarial to me in any way. Can you give us some context for why it is thought that that relationship is so fraught? Well, the main reason for the distance, let's say, not, the fact that the Francis and the Cardinal Zen are not on the same page is over the, agree, the provisional agreement that the Vatican signed with China in September 2018 it's on the nomination of bishops. In other words, the process of democratic election of the candidate to be bishop takes place in China. Then China gives the names of the bishop that has been selected to the to the Vatican, to the Pope. The Pope can say yes or no on the name. Uh, Cardinal Zen is not very happy with this. And secondly, he's not very happy. The text of the agreement has never been made public. There's no provision in the agreement for the underground church, which the cardinal is very attached to. In other words, about half of the 12 million Chinese Catholics belong to the underground church. That is the church which does not accept that the government has to control the church in the way it's doing. So Cardinal Zen has been one of the most vocal, outspoken, and harsh critique of this. But really, Cardinal Zen is not against the Pope because they have known each other for many years. And he told me, I remember at the time of the conclave in 2013, he, he said he was one of the five names he had to be Pope. In fact, he was number three that he thought could be Pope. And he has met the Pope several times. He's requested several audiences with the Pope over the years, these past 10 years, and he has given them. The only time he didn't get an audience was the last time in 2020 when he came for four days to Rome and he didn't get the audience with the Pope. Now that became big news and everybody says the Pope is snubbing Cardinal Zen because he's opposing the agreement and uh, so they, they then put him into the category of the adversaries of Cardinal Zinn. Yeah, they, I mean, and they tried to recruit him uh, in opposition to Francis, right? Also on the question of the Latin Mass. How so? Because Zen likes the Latin Mass. But people do, are not aware that Cardinal Zinn was the first to introduce in China the Mass in Chinese in following the Second Vatican Council of having the liturgy in the language of the people. He was the first to do it in the beginning of the 1990s. And people don't know this part of history. So people quickly polarize, and they want to get him into the camp against Francis because he likes the Latin Mass. Jerry, you reminded me last week that Pope Francis told us in the interview with America, polarization is not Catholic. 
in this description of the relationship between Cardinal Zen and Pope Francis, you're showing how complex these issues are and how, you know, this idea that seems to be very popular at the moment or very much in vogue, uh, that is being recruited by certain religious media, Catholic media, to put Pope Francis in opposition to others um, or others in opposition to Pope Francis is really a simplification that doesn't tell half of the story. Ricardo, I've watched many things that happen and I see the reaction on the blog sites and on the uh, in comments, etc. And there's always polarization. This is one of the few times where I've seen enormous reconciliation, where people who are not very friendly towards Francis and those who are very friendly towards Francis, both saying this was something great. It was a healing event, a moment of reconciliation, which was really greatly appreciated in Hong Kong, in mainland China, among the Catholics there, but also in other parts of the world. Jerry, it feels like we've already covered so much on this show, and we're only halfway done. So we're going to have to move on, unfortunately. I'm sure we'll hear again about Cardinal Zen and Cardinal Pell. After the break, we dig into the news surrounding Archbishop Georg Gainswein, who was Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's closest aide and confidant, his personal secretary. He is releasing a tell-all book that he says will set the record straight on live and controversial issues in the halls of Vatican politics. But some see this as part of a greater anti-Pope Francis conspiracy. Stay with us. In the days leading to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's death, his personal assistant, Archbishop Gainswein, gave an exclusive interview to Tagesspost, a Catholic news media outlet in Germany. Then, just after his death in the Vatican, a large publishing house in Italy and Archbishop Gainswein's publisher announced a tell-all book, which it said will go behind the scenes on Vatican intrigue and answer long-held questions about, among others, the complicated relationship between Pope Francis and Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, the drama surrounding the butler responsible for the VatiLeaks scandal, which sought to expose the Vatican's dirty finances, and finally, that he would tell the story behind the 30-year missing person case of Emanuela Orlandi, or Vatican Girl, as she has come to be known in the title of a Netflix documentary. Can you set the context for us? How does Georg meet Benedict XVI, and how does their relationship go from there? Well, it goes back to 2003. Georg had been working, first of all, in the Congregation for Divine Worship and then moved to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. At that time, Benedict had another secretary and he wanted to make him a bishop because then Cardinal Ratzinger was thinking of resigning. And so he chose Georg Genschwein as his secretary. Then Ratzinger became Pope in 2005, April. Genschwein went with him as his secretary, and since then, until his death, he's acted as the private secretary of the Pope. In 2012, Ratzinger decided he had to resign as Pope. When he told Genschwein, I think in September or sometime before it, Genschwein uh, tried to convince him not to. But he'd made up his mind. Benedict told him, this is not for discussion. The decision has been taken. Obviously, Genschwein, it seems never really reconciled with that decision of Benedict. Uh, uh, this is the impression one gets from the book. Which you have now read. 
I have read a lot of it now, yes. Secondly, 28th of February, the pontificate ends. Uh, there's no pope. Genschwein is now prefect of the papal household because before he resigned, Benedict made Genschwein an archbishop and gave him a significant post in the, in the curia as pe- prefect of the papal household. In other words, the man who meets all the heads of state and dignitaries who go to meet the Pope. So responsible for the papal agenda, basically. Uh, much of it. When Francis became Pope, Genschwein began to serve, what he said, two masters. He continued being the secretary of Benedict XVI, but he was also had this other job as prefect of the papal household and doing this for Francis. Now in the book, he said that he, he never really connected with Francis. This is one of the things that comes out of the book, and which is, I said in a comment in the newspaper, I said that with this book, Genschwein has shot himself in the foot. What is more strange is that while Benedict gave instructions that his private correspondence should be all destroyed, in the book, Genschwein presents some of the private correspondence between Benedict and Francis and Francis and Benedict. Hmm. And so some people have commented and says, this is very curious. I mean, the butler was accused of leaking some private documents. This was confidential correspondence between Benedict and Francis and Francis and Benedict. And Ganschwein knew about it, but why is he revealing it? Hmm. It seems inappropriate. That seems inappropriate, and many people uh, have been critical of this. And then there's the second fact. The publisher sent the book to various journalists, the PDF of the book, but also leaks began to come out about the book just soon after Benedict died and before the funeral. And many people in the Vatican, they felt this was really a a lack of grace, a a lack of uh, uh, respect for a man who wanted a calm funeral to have a storm start over the book. Another thing that comes up in this book, and we know there's been this Netflix series around Vatican Girl, what do we find out about Vatican Girl in the book? Well, I've read this section on the book, and uh, what comes out of it is that Genschwein says that, yes, during the pontificate of Benedict, uh, there was pressure to look again at the question of Emanuele Orlandi. So this is a Vatican citizen, a young girl, 15 years old, who goes missing in 1983. Now, in 1983-84, John Paul II publicly called for those who had had her to release her. And Benedict came under a similar pressure. And Ganschwein reveals that uh, they decided not to uh, have Benedict say it because this only would have triggered a whole other amount of speculation, suggestions, and maybe involved other people in the criminal world. The commander of the Vatican Gendarmeria, Domenico Gianni, at that time looked at all the evidence to see if they had not shared some evidence with the Italian magistrates that were investing the disappearance of the girl. And he said, there was no evidence. And so he denies that the Vatican has kept back evidence. And and this information in the book comes just as we hear this week that there will be an investigation into Emanuele Orlandi, which the Vatican has now initiated, correct? Yes. And remember, uh, Ricardo, the hitherto the investigations have been 
conducted by the Italian magistrates. This is the first time that the Vatican City State, an investigation is being opened by the Vatican judicial authorities. So if the book is supposed to set the record straight and in some ways recover the good name of Benedict XVI, which is believed to have been tarnished, what does the book say in defense of Benedict? It seeks to explain the big, most recent problem in 2020, when on the eve of the Amazonian Synod, Cardinal Sara published a book in the name of him and Benedict. And he tells that Benedict was really astonished and upset by this. So just to be clear, Robert Serra is the Ghanaian cardinal who served as prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments from 2014 to 2021. He is often seen as a traditionalist and a public critic of some of the open discussions around celibacy in the context of the Synod of Bishops on the Amazon. And so Ganschwein says, I, I said to the cardinal, you, you have to have this pulled back. You, you can't do this because it had the photos of the two Benedict XVI and the Cardinal. And so it tells the background of this. After that, it tells how Saro asked for an, an audience with Benedict and an audience with Francis to explain it. And Ganschwein also sought an audience with Francis. And at a certain point, Francis told him, look, you take care of Benedict. You don't come in anymore doing your job as prefect of the papal household. You keep the title but you don't do the job. And that seems to have established some of the tension, right? This tension now between Pope Francis and Archbishop Genschwein and what their relationship is. Genschwein is very open about it. He, he said he felt like he was reduced by half in his role. And he tells that he talked two or three times with Francis on this question, trying to get Francis to change, to give him back his job. And Francis wasn't having it. He makes very clear that when Francis told him, don't come into work tomorrow, you take care of, of Benedict, he says that Benedict, in an ironical way, said, ah, so Francis doesn't trust me, so he's asked you to chaperone me. These kind of things really do not contribute to a good climate. One of the questions that remains is that now that Benedict XVI has died, Archbishop Gainswein is still the prefect of the papal household at least in title, but we don't know the future of that job. What we do know is that Archbishop Gainswein did meet with Pope Francis this week in a private audience. Yes. But we have no detail of that. First of all, he was appointed to that job in December 2012. So this December 20, 2022, he'd already done two terms in that office because the term of an appointment is five years. So technically, his term has expired. Does Francis renew it? Uh, frankly, personally, I cannot see Genschwein returning to active service as the prefect of the papal household. There is a big discussion in Rome where what will happen to him. Will the Pope send him to a diocese in Germany? Will he send him to a nunciatura? There's all kinds of speculation, but really ill-informed speculation, I would suggest. Jerry, I'm wondering now, though, with the release of this book and the destruction of all of Pope Benedict XVI's personal notes, what happens now? Does, does Genschwein now speak for Benedict XVI? I mean, they were always close. He's publishing this tell-all book. 
Did Benedict know he was writing this book? I mean, does he say anything? Does he give any more detail in the book? Well, he, he suggests at one stage that when Francis rolled back Benedict's instruction on the Latin Mass with the Traditiones Custodes, which makes it very difficult now to celebrate the Latin Mass, Ganschwein implies that Benedict was very upset by this and that it broke Benedict's heart. But there's no actual quote in the book that actually says that, but the idea is communicated. And this really raises a question. Is that really what Benedict felt, or is it Genschwein's interpretations of Benedict? There are many questions here, and of course the, the discussion will go on. But I think the general feel, I would say, in the Vatican was that this book was a mistake. What is interesting to me is that given the book, given Genschwein's actions, you know, the interviews he's given, the public comments he's made, there's this presumption that there's this conflict between Benedict and Francis. And so it, it, it raises questions as to what was that real relationship. And I think only time is going to reveal uh, the truth of that. Yes, I, I don't think it presents the relationship as kind of an ongoing conflict. But what it does reveal is that they were not necessarily on the same page on certain questions. Does it say anything positive about their relationship? Oh, it does. Yes, yes. It quotes Benedict stating so publicly how good Francis has been to him. And it mentions, for example, when Benedict decided to move to the monastery behind St. Peter's and come away from Castle Gondolfo, that Benedict was so surprised that when he arrived at the monastery, there was Francis waiting to welcome him. And he said, this was, Benedict was speechless, but he was so touched in his heart that Francis was treating him like this. So again, as we've seen, you know, with Pell, with Zen, now with Gainswein, it's clear that there's a very complex picture and there are complex relationships between Pope Francis and all these people. And yet there are some who want to proffer a persistent narrative that these relationships are more antagonistic than they perhaps are. Yes, but there's a second fact, Ricardo, which I would say, is how the media reads the book. Because journalists and papers and television and radio, they, they like the juicy pizzas, the, the negative. Bad news is good news in terms of it attracts people's attention. And they don't report the good news that's in the book. The fact is the book allows itself to be exploited in this way. Well, Jerry, we're going to have to leave it there. <laughs> this has been a very full show. There's much going on. And we will keep covering this week after week, as we have faithfully for a number of years now. Thank you. Thank you, Ricardo. And happy listening to our audience. I hope it will help to throw some light on issues that are making the headlines. We'll link to all the stories we have covered in the show notes, so if you'd like more details about each of these, please go there. Inside the Vatican is a production of American Media. This episode was produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our audio engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Production assistance from Kevin Jackson, Christopher Spielman, and Vivian Richard. The show is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at American Media in New York and at the Jesuits' international headquarters in Rome. To keep up with the latest Vatican coverage from America Magazine, follow us on Twitter at INSDEVaticanPod. That's inside without the second I, 
Vatican Pod. And you can follow me on social media at RickDSSJ, that's R-I-C-D-S-S-J, and Jerry on Twitter. His handle is at Jerry O. Rome. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Ricardo De Silva. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.